Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And even if you haven't read Daniel Defoe's novel Robinson Crusoe, you've probably at least heard of its main character also called Robinson Crusoe, and he's said to be one of the best-known characters in world literature. The story, of course, is about the adventures of an English seaman who gets shipwrecked on an uninhabited or seemingly uninhabited island for 28 years, and it's kind of about the experiences that he has there, making a home, um, fending off cannibals. I I, I read it, I think, my sophomore year of college, and... I honestly do not remember much about it now, except that he spent the majority of his time worrying about being murdered by cannibals, which I got a big (laughs) kick out of that spelling. Yeah, so it's about these little adventures that he has and just surviving. How does he survive on this island? So it really does seem like this bizarre, fantastical tale. But what's really interesting, at least to us, is that it's widely believed to be based on a true story, uh, the story of a Scottish man named Alexander Selkirk, who was marooned on an uninhabited island for more than four years in the early 1700s. Yeah, it's not a straight copy of Selkirk's story. Though. No, definitely it's, not. For one thing, Selkirk spent a lot less time on the island than fictional Robinson Crusoe did. The location of the island is different. Crusoe was in the Atlantic. Selkirk was in the South Pacific. And how the heroes, if, if we're going to consider them that. <laughs> the main characters. The main characters. How they ended up on the islands is very different. Selkirk wasn't shipwrecked. He actually chose to be there. And I think that's probably the most fascinating little bit of the story, that you would choose this isolation kind of unwittingly. He didn't know exactly what he was going to get into. But so, certainly more interesting than a shipwreck. Yeah, absolutely. I would totally agree with that. And I mean, y'all that. know I like shipwrecks, too, so that's saying a lot. That's saying a lot <laughs> for Sarah here. But we're going to take a look at that really unusual decision, or to us at least an unusual decision, and also a little bit, of course, about Selkirk's own island experience, what he did to survive while he was there. And that's, I mean, in that part, that's where you're really going to see most of the similarities between his story and Caruso's, I think. And, um, of course, we're going to look at how did this experience change? him. Yeah, you think a few years on the island by yourself, definitely. You're going to be a different man when you finally come off of it. But first, of course, we're going to look at how he made his way to the sea in the first place. He was born Alexander Selkirk in 1676 in Lower Largo, Scotland, which is a fishing village in Fife County. And he was the seventh son of a shoemaker named John Selkirk and a woman named Euphen Mackey. And like a lot of the stories that we cover here on this podcast, we see a situation where the son, Alexander, really wants to do something different from what his dad wants him to do. His dad, John, really wants Alexander to follow in his footsteps and join the shoemaking business Literally. that he has. <laughs> right? Yeah. Sorry, bad pun. Um, unintended pun as well. But Alexander dreamed about a life on the sea, about getting to the sea. And his mother supported those dreams because she believed that Alex was blessed with luck, even though he was a bit of a troublemaking punk. Um, as you'll see, according to a Smithsonian article by Bruce Selkraig, who is Interestingly, actually a descendant of Alex, and he's checked out all these historical records from Largo's church elders, and he found that Alexander was actually punished several times for transgressions, little crimes such as fornication. That's how it was listed in the records. Uh Yeah, definitely. Um, 
kind of scandalous. And it was for one of those little crimes, one of those transgressions that he was supposed to appear before the church elders on this day in 1695. And that appears to be the day that he ran away to see for the first time because, yeah, he skipped town. He did not make his little court appearance before the church elders. And um, it's assumed that he was possibly with a Scottish colonizing expedition to Panama or what is now Panama. Yeah, but he wasn't gone for good after that. He popped up around home again, uh, at least long enough to cause some more trouble. In late November 1701, he got into this huge fight with his family, which led to him assaulting his father and his his brother John and possibly even John's wife. And the whole thing might have started when his brother Andrew sort of laughed or made fun of him for accidentally drinking seawater, salt water. Very sensitive. Yeah, definitely to to go after his whole family. So, you know, he's he's around, it seems, back from from Scotland time to time. And then in 1703, he makes his first really big break. Yeah, he joins Buccaneer William Dampier's privateering expedition to South America. And just to give you a little background on that, the privateers, they're basically legitimate pirates for the British crown. So since Alexander had done well in math and geography and navigation in school and impressed his mentors, those credentials kind of helped him secure a position as a navigator on this particular journey. And this is around the time as well that he started becoming known as Selkirk. Yeah, and folks aren't totally sure about why he made that change. He might have been trying to distance himself from this kind of sketchy past, or maybe it was just a spelling or pronunciation misunderstanding. Yeah, I guess some historians think that maybe spelling just wasn't that important back then. No. It happens. So he has his new name, Selkirk, and he joins this expedition, which has two different ships involved. One is called the Sink Ports, and one is called the St. George. And Selkirk himself was aboard the Sink Ports when they set sail September 1703. And like we said earlier, he was a good navigator and helped the ship out quite a bit. He helped them travel as far as 50 miles on a good day. Um, they made it to Brazil in two weeks or so, which I find that pretty remarkable, early 1700s. But it wasn't, the expedition itself was not going well. His navigation seems like about one of the only things that was really working. The privateers had problems from the very start. And a lot of that trouble came from dissension among the ranks. Yeah, Dampier was seen by many to be cruel and incompetent. Um, for example, he was known to let captured ships go free without distur- distributing all the loot to his men like that's he was supposed to. Money. Yeah, that's how they made their cash. So a lot of the crew didn't like him for that reason. And trouble started pretty much from the beginning surrounding that relationship with him. There was also a lot of illness aboard. Um, during that time, ships were a breeding ground for typhus, dysentery, and cholera. And so by November, several of the men were sick with fever or scurvy, which is actually caused by a vitamin C deficiency. Yeah, and one of the guys who gets sick is the captain, Charles Pickering, and he died in late November. So you had a replacement move in, young Lieutenant Thomas Stradling, and he took over the command of the Sink Ports. You'd think that maybe with all the dissension in the ranks, a change like this might make things a little better. It makes things worse. The crew disliked him as much, maybe even more than Dampier. So a lot of trouble now aboard both of these ships. Yeah, and I mean, to add to these already two kind of big issues, there was also the fact that they weren't very successful at what they were supposed to be doing, which was the privateering part of it. They were trying to capture Spanish merchant ships, but they weren't able to do it. So the sailors 
almost mutinied many times because they weren't happy with Stradling and they thought Dampier should attack more ships. Um, as we said before, I mean, this is how they made their money. This is otherwise they're just wasting their time. Yeah, otherwise the catching scurvy, <laughs> right? Hanging out, risking their lives. So they really wanted this to happen. Um, but the major difficulty that ultimately turned out to be the turning point for Selkirk was the poor condition of the ship that he was on. By September 1704, Selkirk's ship was so leaky that men had to pump water out of it almost constantly, pretty uh, much day and night. I mean, I think it's interesting that that's the, the point. The poor condition of the yeah. ship is what <laughs> drives him over the edge, not that you know they're not attacking Spanish or that everyone's getting sick, but he's seriously afraid that the ship will sink. And I mean, it, it is getting really bad. Like you mentioned, they're, they're taking the water out constantly. And so finally they decide to return to an island called Masatira, where they had spent some time earlier that year. And it was located in the Juan Fernandez cluster, which is about 400 miles, uh, 640 kilometers uh, west of Valparaiso, Chile. So, you know, they were just hoping stop there a little bit, build up supplies again and rest and then head out. That was the plan, at least, of the the captain. Yeah, and they did part of that. They spent about a month there stocking the ship with provisions, but they didn't really get much fixed on the ship. It was still pretty worm-ridden and in bad shape. So, But still, then Stradling decides that it was time to set sail. So Kirk argued with him. He stressed that he believed the ship wasn't sound, it wasn't fit to sail, the masts, masts and the floors were so worm-eaten that they wouldn't be able to withstand open sea, much less these battles that the sailors really wanted to get into. Capturing Spanish ships, yeah. So showing his stubbornness, as we've seen before, Selkirk refused to back down from this fight. So he was put ashore with some of his provisions, his bedding, a musket, a pistol, gunpowder, a hatchet, a knife, his navigational tools, a pot for boiling food, two pounds of tobacco, some cheese and jam, a flask of rum, his Bible, the Book of Common Prayer, and the 17 Spanish dollars that were his share of the booty they'd earned so far. So you could see how little they had plundered. Don't spend it all in one place. Right. So, I mean, you'll see different accounts say that he brought different things ashore, but it wasn't much. I mean, it seems like a lot more than if you just happened to show up somewhere by accident, but it still wasn't a lot. Definitely. And, and more than you would leave a, a mutineer, too. He wasn't being treated quite on that level. Yeah, and this was his choice at first, but as soon as the ship starts to leave and he is wading through the water, going to the shore, he starts to immediately regret, regret this. Yeah, totally regret it. Yeah, he he begs, in fact, to be let back on board the ship, but Stradling wanted to make an example of him. You know, in, in that sense, he was treating him like a mutineer, didn't let him back on board, refused the offer. So... Now we have our our castaway. Yeah, and at that point, we have Selkirk, and he's standing there. The ship is sailing away, and he's thinking, oh, man, I might get stuck here for, like, a few days or something. Little did he know. Little did he know. Yeah, he really thinks that another friendly ship will probably come along in a few days' time, and things will be okay. He thinks that he'll be able to at least survive those few days because Masatiera, or Aquas Buenas, as it's also known, which is now officially, by the way, named Robinson Crusoe Island, it wasn't the worst place that you could be stranded for a little while. Not at all. No, it had fresh water and plenty of food sources, it seems. He had access to goat meat, turtle eggs, lobsters, and a hawthorn berry-like fruit that grew on something that was known as the cabbage palm tree. And why, though? Why was this 
uninhabited island, so bountiful. Yeah, bountiful larder of, of foods. And according to an article by Louis Werner in the Americas, it had been explored already in the 1500s by the Spanish. And in 1591, Sebastian Garcia Corretto was given a land grant there. And so he's the one who imported the goats and pigs. And uh, he even had Indians at a time there to farm. The colony didn't work out. It failed. But the goats stayed. They they remained. They turned feral and they thrived. So, you know, it, it ended up being a pretty well-stocked place. And there were some other castaways on this island with Selkirk as well. There were rats and there were feral cats. And these were left behind by ships just like the ones he was on They that had stopped at the island for a little while. And the rats just sort of jumped ended ship. up there. They jumped ship. And exactly. The cats right on their tails. <laughs> right. So... Some people had been left behind on the island, too, in the past. 24 years before Alexander Stent, actually, a Mosquito Indian man named Will was mistakenly left behind, eventually rescued three years later by another privateering ship. Incidentally, the privateering ship that he had been on also was one of Dampier's, I think. Dampier doesn't have a good record. He really (laughs) doesn't. He gets around, but... uh, an interesting point about Will is that the character Friday in Defoe's novel and Robinson Crusoe may have been based on the guy's account. So yeah, Selkirk, he does have this good supply of food. He has some potential friends, the cats on the island. Yeah, you like those cats. I like cats. It would be good to have, uh, cats if you're all by yourself on feral the island. Feral cats though, Sarah. Feral <laughs> cats. <laughs> well, we're gonna, we're gonna get into that a little bit more. They're not necessarily feral. Um, but you know, he has the knowledge that he'll be able to have enough to eat and the knowledge that he could survive if, if he things quick. But still, he's he's pretty depressed at the prospect of, of being alone. Yeah, because he was not only alone, he was in a pretty uncomfortable situation as well. Definitely. Rats would gnaw at his clothes and his feet while he slept. Plus, there was just that little problem with keeping his sanity. No one to talk to. He was alone with his thoughts, listening to sea lions bellowing on the beach all day long. He even contemplated suicide at one point. Eventually, though, a change came over him, and it's kind of hard to understand, I guess, if you haven't been in that position. But the way it's described in early accounts of his story is that after about 18 months, after reading scriptures and turning his thoughts to the study of navigation and, quote, force of reason, he became thoroughly reconciled to his condition. And from that point on, he kind of learned how to live on the island and seemed to find his own sort of peace there, if not really a happiness. It seems like a happiness, but... Yeah, at least not depression, it seems. And he he got down to business, too. You know, he worked on taking care of some of these problems that were bothering him, starting with pest control. So, <laughs> I mean, I would say rats nibbling at your feet at night would be a major issue, kind of top your list. And he managed to take care of them by doing perhaps the most obvious thing you can think of, getting the cats involved in the whole process. So he domesticated some of the cats by giving them pieces of goat meat. They wanted to hang around his camp a little more then, and then they realized there were also lots of feral rats around. Rats are often feral, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, and they they took care of the problem right quick for, for Selkirk. Yeah, but that wasn't the only thing he had to deal with, right? I mean, he had to find food, shelter, and then there's just, what are you doing with yourself all day? You know, what's occupying your mind, taking care of that little sanity issue we mentioned before. So we're going to kind of go through how he got his food and his shelter and 
um, you know, what he did day to day. So this is the real Robinson Crusoe this is, part. Yeah, this is the real Robinson Crusoe part. Exactly. So first of all, what did he eat? Well, there was plenty of fish to be had, but they bothered Silkirk's stomach a lot, I guess. So he had to settle for the island's version of lobster, which was actually a giant clawless crawfish of sorts. Um, he also ate goat meat, as we mentioned before. And once he ran out of gunpowder, he managed to get really agile to the point that he could chase down these goats and sort of outrun them himself and catch them and kill them that way, which I think which is pretty amazing. remarkable, I think. Um, but when he wasn't eating goats or giant crawfish, he did have things like turnips and watercress and the cabbage palm we mentioned earlier, um, just things partly left by the Spanish just growing on the island. And unfortunately, though, he was disturbed by the lack of salt and the lack of bread. I can't quite figure out the salt because presumably he's surrounded by seawater. I think he could use some solar action and collect the salt, but I don't know. Maybe he had other things on his mind. He was missing it. Maybe he just needed you there, Sarah, to show him the way. I think he mentioned he had other (laughs) spices, though. Yeah, I think there were some other peppers and things growing on the island that he used to season his food, but it wasn't quite... Well, not salt. Season the goat meat. Season the goat meat, but it wasn't quite what he was used to still. Um, As far as how he lived, his home, I guess you could say, he managed to build two huts with wood from pimento trees and covered those with long grass and lined them with goat skin. So it Sounds actually kind of cozy. Pretty plush. One, the larger one, was for him to sleep in and kind of hang out in, and the other one was a smaller one in which he prepared his meals. He also learned how to start a fire with wood and musket flints, and he tried to keep that going all day. We also have to discuss how he clothed himself, because obviously a few years on an island, your clothes are not going to last that long. Especially after the rats have been gnawing at them. (laughs) Exactly. That would reduce the lifespan pretty quickly. So when his clothes started to fall apart, he had to make new ones out of goat skins, but he didn't have a needle and thread with him. So he had to use a nail and again with the goats, a little piece of goat skin or old stocking sort of fashioned into twine or thread to to lace all these pieces together. So he must have cut quite a figure once he got his outfits all made. Yeah, I guess he was a uh, pretty styling for that area of the world at the time, but he didn't have anyone to show it off to, really. He didn't have a man Friday like Robinson Crusoe did, but he did have his animals, as we mentioned before. He had the cats, and he also had goats. Um, I mean, he ate the goats, but he also sort of domesticated some of the goats as well. It's It's been said that he'd break the legs of the younger ones to kind of keep them around, and so he had this uh, his own little animal family, I guess, around him. He also had some reading material. He had been left with his Bible and the Book of Common Prayer, and he would sing the Psalms and he would pray. And later he said that he was a better Christian while in the solitude of the island than he ever had been before. He also just really embraced nature, too, while he was there. I mean, you'd have a lot of time to think and think about the island you were on. And he learned a lot about the island and himself in that way, presumably. Yeah, very Thoreau-like. Um, and he was always, always on the lookout for approaching ships during this time. According to Sel Craig's article, Alexander had a lookout spot, which was about 1,800 feet around there in elevation. So he had plenty of time to react if he saw someone coming, which turned out to be really vital yeah. in a couple situations because there was at least one instance during these four-plus years when a Spanish ship came to the island, and they came ashore, the Spaniards did, they destroyed his hut, but... 
Selkirk managed to evade them, and he was right to do so, it seems. Werner actually suggests that he would have been put to hard labor aboard a Spanish ship or perhaps even jailed in Lima. So it wouldn't have turned out for him very well if he'd tried to kind of get on board with these guys. So, I mean, this is another thing that kind of surprised me about this story, because you imagine somebody stranded on an island, you're trying to hail any ship you see, you'd rather be taken by anybody, but that he was actually looking for ships to avoid them, too, I think is is fascinating. Yeah, and I think part of this, we were kind of talking about this a little bit before, is just his own kind of coming to terms with being on the island and his sort of love for the island or comfort. Growing love for it. Growing love for the island, yeah. And, uh, you know, we've talked about before, and you'll see in a lot of writings about his experience that, you know, he looked toward the sea with hope that someone would come, but also with a little bit of hesitation, Definitely. Eventually, though, that friendly ship did come. He spotted one on the horizon, and he was finally rescued February 1709 by a ship called the Duke, and it was commanded by Woods Rogers. And by this point, Selkirk was pretty crazy looking. I mean, he looked like he had been on an island for four years. He had a long beard. He was wearing those goatskin clothes, which, I mean, that's <laughs> that's going to... Wacky. Make you stand out, I think. And he greeted Roger's men by making them goat soup and telling them all about his survival. So he was happy to to have these visitors at first. Yeah, and they hardly knew what to make of him at all. Rogers later wrote that Silkirk so much forgot his language for want of use that we could scarce understand him, for he seemed to speak his words by halves. So just imagine him trying to communicate. He hasn't spoken to another human being in more than four years, and he's trying to tell them what happened, um, that he was marooned. And luckily... Selkirk's old friend, or perhaps his frenemy, we're not really sure how good a terms they were on when they parted ways, but William Dampier was on board the ship. So again, he makes an appearance. Up again. Yep, he recognizes Selkirk and vouches for his navigational skills and also delivers him an interesting bit of news about their old ship that they'd been on together. Yeah, and that's that the ship, he was right, the ship sank after it left. Yeah, the poor sink ports. I knew that was going to happen. Yeah, you did. You called it. It sank soon after abandoning Alexander in 1704, and only about a dozen men survived. Most of those ended up in Spanish prisons, too. So it was actually a good thing that he ended up on the island. Four years on the island might be a little better than four years in a Spanish prison, at least. Yeah, I mean, even without salt. Definitely. From there, Rogers makes Selkirk navigator of his ship, and they sail around for two more years. So it's two more years before Selkirk actually gets home. But then they finally return to London in October 1711, and it was well worth the wait, it turns out. Selkirk comes home with 800 English pounds in his pocket. That was his share of the Duke's plundered wealth. So obviously the Duke did a lot better than Selkirk's last ship did. Yeah, and Selkirk was famous pretty soon, too, because both Rogers and Richard Steele wrote accounts of Selkirk's experience on the island in 1712 and 1713. And the way Selkirk from the Smithsonian article describes it is that he was an eccentric celebrity, which I like that. It, somebody who who could travel around from pub to pub for a couple years, make sightings, telling his adventures, getting free meals. I mean, you have to imagine people would want to get a look at this guy and and hear his story. 
Yeah, and he took full advantage of the situation for a while. He actually ended up marrying two women at the same time. They didn't know about it. It wasn't like a sister-wife situation. He married two women in two separate places. They didn't find out about it until later. So you think he wouldn't be that good at deceit, like living by himself for (laughs) four years on the island. But yeah, who knows? Maybe he didn't do it intentionally. (laughs) Who knows? I don't know too much about that aspect of the story. But I do know that after a few months, he didn't seem so high on life anymore. He wasn't so happy with the situation. He had but he became a loner and he seemed a lot unhappier than he had when he first made that goat stew cheerfully on the island for his rescuers. Um, he seemed more at peace then and now it seems like he had a hard time going back to his... Kind of lost again. Yeah, he had a hard time going back to his old life and his old world. And some biographers even say that he tried to replicate life on the island for a while by returning to Largo and living in a cave-like shelter behind his father's house. Um, he made this statement, which I think is really poignant, and Steele writes about it in his account. He said, I am now worth 800 pounds, but she'll never be so happy as when I was not worth a farthing. Yeah, and so eventually, in November 1720, at the age of 44, Selkirk decided to return to life at sea, something to do and some place to go again. And he signed on as the first mate of a naval warship, the HMS Weymouth. And it was bound for the Gold Coast of Africa, and it was searching for pirates. Um, again, you know, probably hoping to make a little money. And there was a lot of illness on board again, too, though. Yellow fever and typhoid. And eventually Selkirk himself died aboard the ship December 13th, 1721. Interestingly, Defoe had already published Robinson Crusoe by then. It was April 1719, but it's unclear whether he and Selkirk actually met. Historians debate about that. It's suggested, though, that Defoe met either or both, possibly, Rogers or Steele, and he was definitely aware of Selkirk's story. Yeah, and from there, the story became so popular and well-known, um, as we talked about in the introduction to this podcast. And, I mean, we were talking before a little bit about the Swiss family Robinson, and you tend to prefer that, I think, to Robinson Crusoe, Sarah, don't you? Yeah, I mean, it's they have their whole family there. It's a little more fun and exciting. Upbeat. Yeah, <laughs> there's, there's not this, like, murdered by cannibals constant threat. At least they don't dwell on it so much. Yeah, but needless to say, as many stories that it's influenced since then, there is now real evidence also. Yeah, I mean, it was the the story of Robinson Crusoe became popular enough for people to actually go out and look for evidence for this real Robinson Crusoe. Yeah, and they found it in 2008. Some researchers discovered Selkirk's navigational dividers, or a pair of navigational dividers from the time period that they assume are his, and they also found some post holes on the island where his two shelters would have been built. So, you know. Home sweet home. Yeah, and if you want to check out the real Robinson Crusoe's home, you can do that. Um, at, as we mentioned, they changed the name of the island to Robinson Crusoe Island. and Drive and home the point. They did, they did drive home the point, but they also are driving home the point that they don't mind having tourists come by and check it out. So I'm not sure if you can actually see where these post holes are, but perhaps you can. Um, if anyone has visited or knows some more about this, we'd definitely love to hear your own personal Robinson Crusoe stories or Alexander Selkirk stories. So um, you can write us at HistoryPod podcast at HowStuffWorks.com or look us up on Facebook or on Twitter at Missed in History. We also have a ton of articles on how to survive in various dangerous situations. Um, You know, everything from 
too cold to too hot to what should you bring. But the one we're going to recommend for this episode, since he did have all his jam and his cheese and his books, all sorts of, of useful items on hand, five everyday items you can repurpose in a survival scenario. So you can look that up on our homepage by searching for probably everyday items you can repurpose in a survival scenario at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. 